0: Hello and welcome to a special philanthro episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. But it is the giving season this week. So I, Felix Salmon of Axios, along with Emily Peck of Axios.
1: Hello.
0: And Elizabeth Spires of New York Times and Slate and places like that. Hello. Are being joined this week by Rory Stewart. Welcome, Rory. Thank you for having me. We are going to talk about GiveDirectly, which is a charity you recently ran, and very many other things about global development. But to set us up here, can you just introduce yourself, because you have an incredible biography. Who,
2: who are you? <laughs> so uh, my name is Rory Stewart, and I am uh, a number of things. I have been, as you say, recently the president, and I'm now the senior advisor of GiveDirectly. I also teach at Yale University. I co-host the UK's leading podcast, which is called The Rest is Politics. I was the UK's Secretary of State for International Development, and before that, a minister, a number of government departments. I ran to be prime minister against Boris Johnson and was defeated. Uh, Before that, I uh, lived in Afghanistan, in Iraq. I ran a nonprofit. I worked for the British Foreign Service, and I taught at Harvard University.
0: And you've managed to do that all by the age of 30. It's quite astonishing. 15,
2: 15 years old.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We're going to talk about the difference between how governments do development and aid and the way that individuals do. We're going to obviously talk about unconditional cash transfers. We're going to talk about um, what went wrong with Give Directly in Democratic Republic of Congo and much more. It's all coming up on Slate Money I think a really good place to start because you are here mostly wearing your GiveDirectly cap. You are what now an advisor to GiveDirectly, which is a charity we have talked about on this show in the past. It's all about unconditional cash transfers, and we can talk a little bit about how they work. Um, But the thing that makes you particularly interesting is that you have not just been associated with giving unconditional cash transfers via nonprofits to people. you have also in previous lives run a province in Iraq where you were handing out cash as as a sort of government agent. Um, you have run or been a senior minister in like an international aid department where you're handing out billions of pounds And I think the big question I have for you is, are these things commensurate? Like one of the things that I always worry about when I'm giving money to charity is like, this is all well and good, but ultimately, if you really want to move the needle, like everything pales in comparison to governments. And so why do we even bother when really governments control just orders of magnitude more resources than any number of individuals can control collectively?
2: Well, so I, I think that's a very good question. So you're right. I ran the UK Developments Agency, And I was then responsible for a budget of $20 billion a year, a lot of money. So you might well ask, if the British government is giving $20,000 million a year, why would you bother giving any money? Um, The answer, of course, is that these development agencies are very, very strange organizations. I was often seeing projects where almost 95% of the money was wasted before it hit the ground. I was seeing enormous number of projects which seemed to me to be badly misconceived. And I think what private giving allows you to do is two things. One of them is to innovate and come up with much more interesting risky ideas than a government can come up with, which is why I would encourage philanthropists, even large philanthropists, not to simply being echoing government programs or setting up foundations which are almost as bureaucratic as a government organization is. But the second thing, of course, is that it's a way for you personally to interact and show solidarity, respect, respect the dignity of people by giving your own money. So
0: this is fascinating to me, the idea that, you know, government aid, that a large chunk of it is very wasted, because I feel like Governments are exactly the institutions that can do the kind of deep due diligence on organizations like GiveDirectly that individuals cannot. And, you know, when I see an institution that is famously very well-funded like by governments, like the IRC, I think to myself, they have been so vetted by so many governments and received so many billions of dollars, you know, after going through that vetting, then probably that should give me faith that they are good at what they do and you're saying well no if it's if it's government money it's probably wasteful
2: well it, I guess it's that there's a bit of both I mean it's it's true that governments do a lot of vetting but the main reason that large nonprofits get the money is that they are already large nonprofits that can handle huge amounts of money governments don't like to give small grants uh, when I was in Difford, we wanted to be Writing checks for $40 million and upwards. We didn't want to write checks for a million dollars. And there are very few organizations that simply have the bureaucratic capacity to absorb $40 million and upwards. So there's a very small number of people. And if you're USAID, you don't even want to give to the nonprofits directly. You go to these contractors who are for profit companies who take a commission and then redistribute the money themselves. And the projects which these organizations are pursuing, sadly, they often don't believe in. They're pursuing them because that's the way they get the money. It's the way to get the commission. So even quite reputable NGOs, I remember seeing in Afghanistan and saying, what on earth do you think you're doing pretending that you can train carpenters in Southern Helmand and get them jobs for $300 a person? It's completely ridiculous. You're giving them a week's worth of carpentry training. There's no way they're going to get a job. And their answer was, well, yes, but, you know, the government contractor wanted to create 20,000 jobs, and they had a very limited budget, and it worked out at $300 a head. And we need the money. You know, our whole business model relies on us charging overheads on these government contracts. So they will take it, – it takes an enormous amount for any large NGO or contractor to actually say they're not going to take a government contract because they believe it's hopeless.
1: So it's not – The governments who aren't spending the money effectively, it's the people who are contracting with the governments who aren't
2: spending the money effectively.
0: Or it's the governments who have like unrealistic expectations for what a certain amount of money can achieve.
2: Yeah. So so if you take, I mean, let's take, um, go back to my department, Department for International Development, UK. We were very, very proud that we were going to educate 100 million girls a year. So somebody had set this target, like a political target. It's in a manifesto and we're boasting about educating 100 million girls. And our great success story was Malawi, where female participation in primary schools had gone up from about 20% to about 85% of girls were completing seven years in education. Big ticks all around. Until I look into it and I discover that at the end of seven years, something like 90% of those women cannot read or write. So when I say, well, what, what on earth is the point of that? Why can't they read or write? They say, well, you know, we're, we're only spending about $30 per head per year. And if you wanted them to read or write, you'd have to spend much more. (laughs) So I'd say, well, okay, I'd be quite nice for them to read or write. Why don't we spend $300 per head per year? And then they said, well, then you could only educate a 10th of the number of girls. And I'd say, but you're not educating any girls, right? So the whole thing is based, a lot of philanthropy, both government development work and private philanthropy is based on fantasies. And the basic fantasy is that you can achieve an incredible amount for basically no money. I mean, you, you've all seen the ads. You s- used to see them in newspapers and on TV. Mm-hmm. You know, give $2, save someone's eyesight. You know, give a dollar, buy them a goat or whatever it happens to be, right? Um, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, a lot of that is deeply, deeply dishonest. Um, it is possible to make a real difference in someone's life, but you can't do it for $20.
0: We need to have some quick ads, but after this, we're going to talk about fish training.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead, and after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at lq.com. The calculations from GiveWell like, you know, would seem to imply that if you want to save a life, the, the going rate these days in the most effective charities is like four or five thousand dollars, something like that, maybe ten thousand if you add everything in. And yeah, you're right. If if you listen to the um to the kind of propaganda put out by charities, they they do make it seem, you know, that very small amounts of money can can have an outsized impact. And there is this kind of race to the bottom where you get people like, you know, feed a family of four for 25 cents or something. You're like, that's clearly not possible. You can't do it. But like that makes it seem that they're more effective and, and can raise more money.
2: One of the other things that is never revealed is what the administration costs are, how much people spend on staff, how much they spend on their offices, their vehicles, delivering it. So even if a family of four could just about get a meal on the table for 25 cents, the 25 cents you give to the charity is certainly not going 100% towards that thing, like 10% of it is going to that. The rest of that is going to administering it. Let's imagine, here's a good, good example that I came across in DFID. So we got a lovely program, which was supposed to be about providing water and sanitation for young women in school. And the idea was that many young women during their monthly cycle would drop out of school. But if they had proper sanitation facilities, they would stay in education for another few years. So we allocated a budget of $40,000 per school. I then drive out into rural Zambia to see one of these programs. And I see a lot of white land cruisers and engineers and UN officials and staff, and they come out to greet me. And I say, how's it going? They go, it's great. We've done our surveys, we've done our assessments, we've done our engineering studies, and this is what we've produced. And they have produced two holes in the ground with four brick walls around them and five red plastic buckets. Total cost, maybe $2,000. And I say, what's with the red plastic buckets? And they say, well, we did our engineering studies and we decided it was more sustainable and appropriate technology for the girls to take the buckets to the local well and bring it back. And if we built a pipe, it wouldn't be as easily maintained and blah, 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 blah. So I said, well, this is ridiculous. If you're only spending $2,000 per school, we could do 20 times the number of schools for this $40,000 budget, right? Why don't we just give $2,000 to the head teacher and let him get on with it? And the answer was, oh, well, the head teacher might steal the money. We need all this monitoring and evaluation, engineering surveys, studies. We need to check that it's the appropriate thing to do. And I'm saying, you've stolen the money. You guys have stolen $38,000 out of the $40,000. And this is very, very difficult to get into people's heads. People don't find it very difficult to calculate that all the things that reassure the donor, we've had an engineer to check it we've done a monitoring and evaluation system we've got our anti fraud mechanisms in place we've done a you know whatever needs assessments community consultations chew up 80 or 90% of the money and the community end up receiving very very little of the money that you've given
0: so that's the problem what's the solution
2: well the solution is to turn it all on its head and say that the way to Deliver reliable programs where most of the money, 90% of the money, hits the ground is to cut out the experts and give it directly to the communities themselves. And when I say cut out experts, obviously that means cutting out experts from the global north, from America or Europe. But it's also often cutting out local experts because you can also spend a lot of money with people from the capital city in that country taking their fancy land cruiser out from their office to go and check what's going on. So it's not an international against local agenda. It's a trusting the community against the idea of the expert agenda. But to break that, we have to break something very, very deeply embedded psychologically in our brain, which is that we've all got this idea that give someone a fish, they eat for a day, teach them to fish, they eat for a lifetime. (laughs) And we all set up these kind of fish teaching (laughs) organizations. And the truth of the matter is that most of the rural communities living in extreme poverty, either know how to fish, but just don't have the money for a fishing hook, or they don't want to fish. They want to open a bakery. And we are wasting an incredible amount of money turning up in a patronizing fashion, teaching them to do things they either already know how to do, but don't have the money to do. So lots of examples of that. we, We ran benchmark studies on nutrition, traditional nutrition program, nurses, doctors, experts turn up and teach mothers what to feed their babies. And we tried as an experiment in Rwanda, putting $3 million to a traditional NGO and a nutrition program, and then putting the same amount of money just in cash directly to those communities. And we found the nutrition outcomes are better with the cash than with the nutrition program, because the cash allows you to actually buy the cow and have some milk. The nutrition program, (laughs) all the money's wasted on telling you that you need more calcium in your diet, but you don't have any money to buy the cow.
0: So I've Two questions about this. The first one is You ran a fish teaching program, didn't you, in, in Afghanistan? Like, you know whereof you speak. Yeah. With hindsight, was that like, misguided? Well,
2: it depends. I mean, the Afghan program was. Uh, so I, I set up a nonprofit which is still going very successful called Turquoise Mountain, which works in conflict zones. And what it does is it saves historic buildings and restores them before they are. Uh, obliterated, and it saves traditional crafts and works for traditional craftspeople. If you have a very narrow objective like that, you have to do quite a lot of teaching someone to fish because you have to make sure that you're, you're not simply addressing multidimensional poverty. You're not simply giving money to a community and saying, you know best, spend the money on whatever you want. could be education, could be health, could be fixing a roof, whatever, right? you are specifically saying, my objective here is to stop these 120 buildings being demolished and to restore them in a historic fashion. So then you have to control it much more. Or another example, which is you know kind of dear to the heart of people like Bill Gates or GiveWell, if you're only focused on malaria, then you buy bed nets. Or if you're focused on deworming, you buy deworming pills. So there are certain kinds of very narrow things where you have a very narrow policy objective. And in that case, You have to remain pretty narrowly focused on that. But if you're trying to address poverty in general, try to get people who are living on $2.15 a day, so these are people who are eating maybe once every two days, don't have any decent shelter on their roof, don't have any assets, probably don't have their kids in school. If they get ill, that's it. They have got nothing to fall back on. If you're trying to help them, then you want to be giving them cash and letting them decide how to spend that money. Because what they want to do with that money you know what Emily wants to do with the money might be opening a small business. What you, Felix, want to do with the money might be, um, I don't know, fixing a roof. Someone else might want to get their kids into school. Someone else might have a sick aunt. You can't guess house by house. And the problem with traditional programs is you're pretending that you can guess house by house what everyone wants. You go and consult them, and then you go off and you procure these things for them. Much more efficient. Just give them the money and let them address their needs themselves. Trust them.
0: We're going to have a quick break, and we're going to talk more about the whole question of giving people money after this.
3: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
0: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call,
1: clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
0: Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the Slow News from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house, I got people camped here, ransacked my computer. And I I got people fracturing me, I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. When you did your sort of randomised controlled trial in in Rwanda with with the nutrition programmes versus the cash, um this is my other question. It's like, how easy slash difficult is it to do the cash bit? Um did was did you just give out the cash yourself? Did you contract give directly to do it? Uh, you know, is is this a difficult thing to do or an easy thing to do?
2: It's much easier than it ever has been because of the development of mobile money in Africa. Mobile money in Africa means that people effectively use their SIM card as a wallet. So the money can be transferred pretty directly from a bank account in Europe or the United States, directly to someone's phone. And you can see the money arrive and you can see that money spent. And there's no middle people, there's no government in the way, there's no NGOs in the way. And that's really what GiveDirectly specializes in. It specializes in turning up in a community, working to explain how the mobile phone system works, supporting them as they receive that payment and doing some monitoring and evaluation of the payments received, but doing it as efficiently as possible to try to ensure that if you sent $100, $92, $93 of that would arrive directly on that person's phone. Uh, For people who are not kind of professionalized philanthropists, how would you suggest evaluating whether the problem you want to address is better addressed by the, as you put it, uh, teaching people to fish approach versus direct uh, cash transfers? You need to decide what it is that you want to do. Most. Um, I think I'd probably start by saying only do programs which are at least as effective as cash, and there aren't very many of those. So you'd you'd start by looking at very, very few programs. You probably wouldn't look at much more than malaria vaccination, deworming, and direct cash transfer for poverty. I mean, there could be other niche things that you might choose to do, but Many of them are better done by governments and government loans, for example, you know roads, dams, bridges. I mean those are important things in a developing country, but they're not something I'd suggest a private philanthropist gets involved in funding. And then I would probably ask myself, what is it that I feel makes a meaningful difference that connects to my own values? So you might think what I really care about is to reduce infant mortality. So if what you really care about is that out of let's say, 10 villages, you want to make sure that two more babies don't die next year. You might specialize in something like deworming or anti-malaria. But you would be accepting that your money be going there and everybody in those villages would remain very poor. They would live longer, but they would live longer in extreme poverty. On the other hand, you might think, actually, what I really want to do is give somebody, and it could be a grandmother looking after three grandchildren, a chance to improve her life. You know really fix her roof buy a cow, get the kids back into school, get a mattress on the floor, buy a cooking pot, invest in a small business in which case you'd be better off giving unconditional cash.
0: I have always felt that um, infant mortality in particular seems to get overweighted among certain types certain types of people in the development community because of the like the the reign of the quality the the quality adjusted life year and if you save an infant's life there are so many years of life that you create um that like it winds up dwarfing any kind of any kind of benefit that you could ever provide by giving anything to a grandmother because she just doesn't have that many years left and that and i feel like this is a kind of a weird result that isn't always intuitive especially in um countries where one of the big picture aims that virtually everyone wants is to bring the birth rate down.
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot of paradoxes there. I mean, I think that the first thing is you put your finger on something which will be, is maybe not completely familiar to everybody, but there is this very big effective altruist movement, which is about making sure that your dollars are spent as effectively as possible. And to do that, as you say, they come up with this quality adjusted life year and they put a big weight on different things. They have to, in order to work out what a good investment is, they have to decide how to weigh somebody living longer against somebody living shorter, but with a better life or how to weigh brutally 10 villages remaining in extreme destitution, but two babies living who wouldn't otherwise live or 10 villages being better off In financial terms, but two babies dying. These are very difficult things to weigh. And I don't think that there is any way through this, which is a pure kind of um, calculus. I don't think there is some sort of universal accepted method where you can just plug numbers in at one end and out the other. At some level, you have to have a human judgment about how you would like your money to be spent and what you see your priorities are. And I think, Felix, you've put your finger on something that I think is very difficult. We have had a huge increase in sub-Saharan Africa uh, in terms of life expectancy. People are living much, much longer than they were in 1980. And that's partly because many fewer babies are dying before the age of five. But since 1980, in 1980, there were 170 million people living in extreme poverty in sub-Saharan Africa. Today, there are 470 million people. So one of the things that's happened is the population has gone up very dramatically, partly because people are living longer and babies are not dying. And as a result, there are 300 million people living in extreme misery and destitution. Now, how do you calculate what you'd rather do? I, for what it's worth, am uh, focused on trying to give people the chance of improving their material conditions. I think poverty is the most humiliating, terrifying, debilitating, depressing situation to live in. And I would like to give that grandmother the chance to choose to use that cash to improve her situation rather than say to her, I'm not going to give you the cash, but I'm going to inoculate your grandchildren. And brutally, that is often the choice. I mean, it sounds silly, but there is only a very limited amount of money to go around. And brutally, that is the choice that we're all arguing about, particularly in the EA community.
1: You were saying one of um, Give Directly's big innovations is sort of cutting out the the middleman going directly uh, to the people you're trying to help. But <laughs> you had um, this a fraud situation in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and it seems like part of the issue there was because there were no middlemen and no
2: real checks on fraud. So so, so let, let, let me tell you about that. So the fraud situation in Congo was very serious. And it happened in a program where we were operating in a very difficult conflict zone. So Eastern DRC, there are well over 100 separate armed insurgencies. And there are an enormous number of internally displaced people, so internal refugees. And so the challenge we were facing is how do you get people in remote communities to register their SIM cards safely? So the normal way that we would do it is you would issue a SIM card, and then they would travel often to a, a larger town to register their SIM card with the SIM card provider and set up the system. And that is a very important check because that allows us to know that you, Emily, have received your SIM card, you've registered your SIM card, you've shown an identity, And then when the money is transferred, we're pretty confident that you, Emily, have your SIM card. In the case of Eastern DRC, the decision was made three years ago to allow the staff to register those SIM cards because it was considered to be safer than having thousands of people traveling into the towns through very dangerous roads. And what happened is the staff then stole the money. They basically pocketed those SIM cards and paid themselves. So that was a terrible situation. And Globally, it was 0.6% of the money that year was lost, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it is a lot actually in Congo because we have a very large budget annually. And it was a terrible learning experience for us. I think what we're proud of is that as soon as we discovered it, we immediately went out, publicized it, put it on the website, gave interviews because we think it's very important that people understand. And I think. Often other non-profits are a bit shy to admit how much can be lost through corruption, particularly in conflict zones. So we're not the 1st nonprofit, and we're certainly not the last, who will have had a lot of money stolen in Eastern DRC. Food can be stolen, medical supplies can be stolen, huge corruption can happen in construction projects. Um, in a way, cash is almost easier to detect than any other form of fraud, but it can happen in, in cash as well. So what do you do to prevent that? Or do you just sort of write it off as the cost of doing business? No, to prevent it, we have had to change the procedures entirely um, in a couple of ways. One of them is, in future, unfortunately, if you want to receive the money, you have to travel in person to register. So we've taken away the ability of staff to do the registration. And then we're using many, many more different systems, including technical systems and human systems, to check and validate recipients. And that is a little bit more expensive, um, but it's always a balance. And I want to be absolutely confident in future of people giving money that their money is receiving the recipient, reaching the recipient, even if that costs us a little bit more to monitor.
1: What about vetting staff and things like that?
2: Well, a lot of energy goes into vetting staff, but you can get it wrong. And we got it wrong. We were convinced to hire people who'd worked for other nonprofits other businesses who came with good references, who turned out not to be honest.
0: Tell me about your job. Like, I I guess not your current job or maybe your current job. I'm I'm a little bit unclear what your current job is versus the old one, but, um, you were running this shop. Um, and obviously part of it is getting, is persuading people like slate money listeners to donate their money to give directly so it can then get passed through to people who really need it. Um, Presumably, you were hired, I'm just going to assume this, but you can tell me if I'm wrong about this, because you are very well-connected in the government world, you have a lot of experience internationally, and there was an idea that you could also raise much larger amounts of money from governments. Is that, was that a large part of it?
2: That's definitely part of it. A lot of my job, still today as the senior advisor, is about getting money in from governments. But to get government money in, you have to use the philanthropic money to prove the models. If we can actually prove what I think we're well on our way to proving through these randomized control trials, that cash is the most effective way to lift people out of extreme poverty, we have a real opportunity. So uh, attacking extreme poverty, ending extreme poverty, is the number one goal of the United Nations, literally goal number one. And the world has been failing terribly, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa and particularly in key countries, Malawi, Congo, many others. And give Directly is beginning to demonstrate just how revolutionary it is. I mean, let me just try to give an example. Um, we were just looking at a village in Rwanda, on the Rwanda-Burundi border, and we went in and gave unconditional cash to each household. And within about three months, you found almost all the houses ended up with a formal roof. Electrification, people's access to electricity in the village, went from about 40% to about 80%. Livestock ownership, so ownership of cows and goats, jumped by a similar amount, sort of 40 to 80%. You had an increase in the number of kids in school. You had 100% of people ending up with latrines. You had a Significant expansion in small businesses, people's savings and investment went up, their nutrition improved. Now, if you were to go to a traditional nonprofit or government agency and say, We want to achieve all those things in this village, they would design an incredibly complicated and expensive program to try to go. They would
0: would design the Millennium Village.
2: They would design the Millennium Village. They would go in house (laughs) by house and they try to survey every roof and then they do their nutrition programs, they do their education enrollment. They'd do young youth business training, they would do etc, et etc, cetera, et cetera. and they would probably spend for a village of a hundred houses to do that many millions. We could do it for seventy thousand dollars because we're giving about seven hundred dollars per head, and the villagers are doing it themselves, they're fixing their own roofs, they're getting their own kids back to school, they're putting their own food on the table. and the money is flowing through the economy, so for every dollar that arrives. Again, in this history randomized control trials, it's like a medical trial where we have a control group and a treatment group, and you compare the treatment group to the control group over time, like giving a sugar pill to one group and giving I don't know, uh, ibuprofen to another group. You find that over three, six, nine, 12 years, the impacts are sustained. And you find in the recent study in Kenya that for every dollar we give to a community, there's $2.50 of benefit to the surrounding communities. So it's it's completely transformational. I've never seen anything in international development where dollar for dollar it makes so much is why I give money to give directly.
0: And this is also why it, it's actually weirdly difficult to do RCTs with UCTs, randomized controlled trials for the unconditional cash transfers, um, because precisely because the money that you Put into one village can and does flow into the neighboring village that you're trying to use as a control, and so it, it kind of understates the the delta because you're, you're you're raising the incomes and quality of life of the neighboring village as well so I love this idea, and this is a, a standard idea in in the philanthropic world that like the smaller private philanthropy is the proof of concept that then catalyzes the the mega bucks from governments. If and when, and it's already started, governments start understanding the value of direct cash transfers, how important is it that they give that money? How much much of your job is it that they give that money to give directly and use give directly to effectuate the transfers versus giving out cash through some other conduit or other means?
2: If if they can find a more effective, more efficient way of giving the money, of course they should do it. I mean, the advantage that Give Directly has is that it is, you know, it was, I think last year the fastest growing nonprofit in the world. It did well over two hundred million dollars in direct cash transfer. It's got a big lead in research and development technology. But there are other nonprofits who do this. And if governments come across other nonprofits or government agencies or others who can do it at the same efficiency levels, of course they should do that. And and
0: when you did it in Rwanda with your three million dollars of of cash you give out, did you use gift
2: directly there? Yes, gift directly. Absolutely.
1: Okay. Yeah. It seems so obvious when you talk about it to giving people money would make them less poor. I think everyone says that <laughs> when we talk about this kind of thing. what has been historically the resistance? It seems like the resistance has come from a very um patronizing place of like we know best what's best for you. You know, you're not poor because you have no money, you're poor for some other reason you're not homeless because you don't have money. You're homeless because whatever.
2: Exactly, Emily. The the, the assumption is very, very deep because it's very threatening to understand that fundamentally the reason why most people are poor is that they don't have (laughs) money. It's much easier to try to tell yourself that maybe they're undeserving, Mm -hmm. that they have some moral issue, that what they're lacking is, I don't know, knowledge or moral character. There's also an element, unfortunately, of vanity in philanthropists, which is understandable but people want to feel that they have come up with a brilliant idea they don't want to just feel they're giving cash there you know i often come across philanthropists who say you know somebody i don't know running a sandwich shop selling sandwiches to heathrow airport and has made a lot of money will say i had this amazing insight i realized that you know the best thing i could contribute is not my cash it's my knowledge and my business acumen because i built this amazing business and I'm like, well, what, what do you actually know about life in a rural village in Malawi? I mean, you, you're going to move to rural Malawi? You got, I mean, and even if you did, what, really? I mean, what, what do you, you're going to teach him how to make sandwiches to sell the Heathrow airport? I mean, what's <laughs> the deal here? I mean, fundamentally, this woman wants to fix her roof, get her kids into school, put some food on the table. And she's much more able to do that than you are, because she can get her cousin to come in and fix the roof. She can the school's right next door. She can grow her own food. She knows where to get a calf from the neighbor's cow. You can't do that mm. for her. But it's partly a, the vanity point is also about showing off that I fear that sometimes philanthropists want to sit next to someone at a dinner party and say, oh, I had this amazing idea. I suddenly, you know, I'm giving people chickens because I realize that chickens have eggs and <laughs> eggs have more chickens. And, <laughs> and, and, and that's going to, you know, Totally, you know, for every chicken I give, people could end up with like 200 chickens (laughs) in a few generations' time. Um, Whereas if you say at a dinner party, what do you do? And you say, oh, I I give people cash. You're slightly worried that they'll look at you like, whoa, you crazy? Mm -hmm. What do you mean you're just giving cash to people? Are you sure you didn't invent like an amazing uh, roundabout in a playground which is going to pump water when you sit on it (laughs) or something? This is a real example, by the way. You know it's it's a real example. It was an amazing thing. It's called the play pump. And a lot of the wealthiest people in the world decided that it was a really great idea to invest in this machine, which was a very expensive children's play item. So it's a, a, really it's a roundabout. it's It's a thing that the child pushes uh-huh. and jumps on and it spins around, ok. So they attached it to a water pump. And the idea is that while the children were spinning around, it would pump water for the village. Uh, very, very expensive. Child labor to, as a to solution. Buy. Very expensive to make it. Yeah. <laughs> and and of course the children got bored. So then you end up with exhausted <laughs> mothers pushing Aww. this damn thing round and round and round to try to get the water out of the pump.
1: So so philanthropy is the idea should be to make the people you're donating money to feel good, but in practice it's to make the people donating the money feel good.
2: Yes. And I, I, you know, that's understandable. I mean, I guess we all are weighing up our selfish instincts against our altruistic instincts. There's a lot of ego and our visions of ourselves involved in how we want to do our philanthropy. All that's very understandable, but it's a real relief when you come across a philanthropist who just is prepared to look at the data and say, look, we've done over 300 randomized control trials demonstrating again and again that you should not be wasting your money, for example, on doing youth business training, that we have demonstrated that giving cash to people results in more businesses and more income from those businesses. And your youth business training results in people being able to parrot business jargon, but has no measurable impact on the number of businesses they create or the income they bring in. You mentioned um, effective altruism earlier, what do you say to people who take a long-termist approach to that and suggest that, for instance, uh, relieving poverty now is not should not be a priority because we have bigger concerns, you know, threatening AIs and whatnot? This, this is very difficult. I, I don't want to underestimate the impact of many, many other things. And, you know, it's true. AI is a potential enormous opportunity and a potential extraordinary threat to the world. Um, and... People should be studying it and thinking about it. But I don't think that studying and thinking about future problems should be remotely absorbing the amount of money there is in the world. <laughs> Americans spent on Halloween some staggering <laughs> multiple <laughs> billions of dollars, yes. right? Um, uh, which could genuinely transform the lives of millions of people around the world and really transform, I mean, make their lives immeasurably more decent, humane, prosperous. And so by all means, if you are somebody who knows a lot about AI and wants to put some money into studying AI, do so. But I would suggest that you balance it. I mean, we've got a lovely opportunity now coming because it's Giving Tuesday. And we've got people offering to match all the way up to $350,000. So if listeners want to just pop their toe in the water, give a small donation, it would be double. But I think the I think get used to the the radical humility of saying, I'm not going to micromanage what you do. I'm not going to presume to judge whether what you need is a goat or a cow or your kids in school or your aunt getting to hospital or starting a small business. I'm just going to acknowledge that your life is immeasurably tougher than mine is. And a little bit of cash is going to be a much greater help to you than to me, that Every dollar, well, a dollar to me, on average, for the average person in the U.S. Europe, is worth the equivalent of a hundred dollars to someone in extreme poverty. the The impact is a hundredfold. What What that money will mean to them compared to what it means to us.
0: Talk to me just a little bit about how you came to run this organization. The more broad, which you know, which I for a little bit of background was set up by Michael Fay and Paul Niehaus, right who are you know very kind of business academic types, you know, obviously Western white men. Talk to me a little bit about like the the way in which Give Directly thinks about where it's located, who leads it, how much they get paid, how you kind of balance the the mission versus the administration.
2: So um Give Directly was, as you say, set up by a group of MIT and Harvard graduate students in economics, of which, as you say, two leading people were Michael Fay, who very much drove it as the president for many years, and and Paul Nehas. There's there's also Rohit was a co-founder as well, Rohit Wanshu. They are extraordinary people, and they came to it initially really from their academic research. They were seeing all this extraordinary data suggesting that cash was more powerful than any other intervention. And they thought, well, why don't we try? And they set off with, I think, $40,000 that they'd got from friends and family. And then they got a little bit of money from Google. Actually, sorry, quite a lot of money, a couple of million from Google quite early on to prove the model. And they just kept demonstrating it. And because they're very entrepreneurial, very interested in tech, they began doing some really interesting things like mobile money transfer to keep costs down and a real startup mentality. It's a very interesting organization, which is why quite a lot of the funding has come from of Silicon Valley and startups and IPOs because people sense and give directly this culture. How how does it work now? Well, I guess the transfer from me to Michael was one form of transition. I think maybe registering that the organization has grown to a certain scale. We're now operating about 15 countries. As I said, we were up to $200 million last year. And we are now bringing in more money from governments and we're doing more interesting things around cash for climate, cash for the environment, cash in humanitarian emergencies. We got involved, for example, we were the first people to deliver cash after the Turkey earthquake. We were very early on the ground on the Morocco earthquake. So we, we are doing more complex things. We have about 700 staff, which is actually very small for a nonprofit of this size. I mean, a fraction of the size that most comparable nonprofits would be with that kind of budget. I've moved aside from being the president and handed over to Sam Wale, who's our first leader from the Global South. He's a distinguished Kenyan civil servant. And I think he brings a wisdom and perspective and a knowledge of Africa, which is where most of our programs are, which none of us had before. The vast majority of our staff are local staff. Well over 90, maybe even 95% of our staff are based in country and are mostly local nationals.
1: Why did you decide to step down?
2: Partly because I think... My um, Well, I think a couple of things. I think one of them is that I think my real skill set for them is communicating, hopefully, hopefully, I hope I'm doing the right job communicating, uh, raising money for them, uh, raising money from governments. And I have a young family. So I was living in Jordan, running, give direct from Jordan. I've now moved back to London with my young family. But partly also, I'm very proud that we now have a leader from the global south. And I think increasingly nonprofits are acknowledging that it is a good thing to have uh, somebody like Sam running an organization like us.
0: Well, I think that's um, all we have time for. Rory Stewart, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been amazing having you.
2: Thank you. Really great pleasure to talk to you all. Thank you.
0: It's, it's givedirectly.org, I you.
2: givedirectly.org. And thank you for taking interest in what I think is a, probably, in, in the words of my friend Paul, probably the most ethically meaningful project I've ever engaged in.
0: Thanks to all of you for staying in touch, slate money at slate.com and to Patrick Fort for producing and we'll be with you next week with more Slate Money.